Good morning to everyone. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John 21. John chapter 21. Uh, We have arrived at the end of our series in John's uh, gospel account. How many of you remember Joe Woodell? Uh, He started... He started this series, I had to go back and look, on uh, July 8th, 2008. So here we are, 19, by my reckoning, 19 months later. All good things must come uh, to an end. But I do, I do pray, I do hope that the, uh, the Lord has blessed you as we've made our way through this, through this book. And I, I do hope and pray that He has Impress the rock of ages upon your heart and mind. Uh, William Hendrickson, in his commentary on John's gospel account, he begins his commentary with these words. Now, the gospel according to John is the most amazing book that was ever written. The gospel according to John is the most amazing book that was ever written. Written. Why? Because it gives us a most amazing description, does it not, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We do not need, in our day, uh, we do not need, I'm convinced of this, uh, trendier programs, greater resources, or bigger budgets. We don't need any of those things. Uh, I'm even convinced in our day, in the first instance, notice I qualified it with that phrase, in the first instance, uh, we don't need stronger families, better marriages, or healthier relationships, in the first instance. Uh, In the first instance, we don't need more fellowship. Uh, We don't need more prayer. We don't need more evangelism. Above all things, we need Christ. We need a clear vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as declared in God's word. That's what John's gospel account gives us. Everything, better marriages, healthier relationships, prayer, evangelism, all those things good and in and of themselves. But all of those things by necessity and of necessity flow from Christ. And a vital relationship with the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope, I hope and pray we've, we've caught something of that as we've made our way through this gospel account. Uh, the following illustration, I hope will drive this home. It comes from the pen of Don Carson. He writes, in 1952, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and into the water. Determined to swim to the shore, the, the, the shore of mainland California. She already, she was already an experienced long distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. She could scarcely see the boats that would accompany her. For 15 hours she swam. She begged to be taken out. But her trainer urged persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it, that the shore was not far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she finally just stopped swimming and she was pulled out. 
The boats made for the shore, and she discovered to her dismay that it was a mere half mile away. The next day she gave a news conference. What she said, in effect, was this. I don't want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she proved her point. On a bright and clear day, she plunged back into the sea and swam the distance. Christian, do you see the shore? Do you see Christ? Christ as he is put on display in the word. Christ as he is put on display in John's gospel account. Does the Lord Jesus Christ have preeminence in your life? Can you say with the Apostle Paul that he, you have four great desires The Apostle Paul rhymes these off in his epistle to the Philippians. He says, I desire firstly to know Christ. Philippians 3.8 I desire secondly to be found in Christ. Philippians 3.9 I desire thirdly to honor, to glorify Christ. Philippians 1.20 And I desire fourthly to be With Christ. Can you say that? Can I say that? Does the Lord Jesus have the preeminence in my life? That, that I hope and pray is, is, is the lasting effect of this series of studies that has gone on almost 19 months. That at the end of it, we can look back and we can say, I see the Lord Jesus. As the Spirit of God has revealed Him in God's Word. We're going to take one more stab at it this morning. We're going to wrap it all up by looking at the epilogue. John chapter 21. John begins with a prologue in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. He then begins with a description of Christ's public ministry. He came to His own in the broadest sense of the word, and his own people did not receive him. We have an account of that from the middle of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 12. And then John gives us a description of Christ's private ministry, having loved his own, not in the broad sense of the word, but in the very narrow sense of the word. God's elect, God's people, his sheep, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And we have a description of that in chapters 13 through 17. And then John gives us a very vivid description of Christ's passion. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And he drinks it up. He drinks it down to the bottom. And he gives us a description of Christ's substitutionary work, his passion, his suffering in chapters 18, 19, culminating in the resurrection in chapter 20. And now in chapter 21, we have a concluding word, an epilogue. And yet even here in this epilogue, we still see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take note of it. Peter is prominent. John is prominent in this narrative. But they're not the most important people. It reminds me that you and I are not the most important people. Look for Christ in these verses. And look for the glory of Christ as I begin to read in verse 1. After this. Jesus 
revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books 
that would be written. We're going to behold the glory of Christ. As we find it in this chapter, we're going to break it into three sections and, and behold three aspects of God's glory, of Christ's glory. Uh, firstly, the glory of His power. His power. Secondly, the glory of His grace. And thirdly, the glory of Christ's knowledge. And as we go through each of these sections and we look at Christ's glory, each of these three manifestations, we're going to ask a very simple question of each manifestation. What should this encourage me to do? What should be my response? So that's our plan this morning. We begin with the first, the glory of Christ's power. And we catch a glimpse of this glory in the first 14 verses. Interesting to note, this is the fourth miracle. This is Christ's fourth miracle involving fish. In Luke chapter 5, he tells some of the disciples who are with him in the boat to, uh, to cast their nets into the sea. They had been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. He commands them to cast their nets again, and they haul in a great quantity of fish. That's the first miracle. The second miracle is found in John chapter 6, which we looked at some months ago. And there the Lord Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, hands them to the disciples, and commands the disciples to feed the multitude of 5,000 men plus women and children. They obey and they collect 12 baskets full of scraps. The third miracle is found in Matthew chapter 17. And there the Lord Jesus commands Peter to take a hook, a fishing hook, cast it into the sea. And the first fish that he catches will have a coin in its mouth. And with that coin, he is to pay the temple tax. This here in chapter 21 of the book of John is the fourth miracle involving fish. There are actually three miracles, distinct miracles. Three distinct manifestations of the glory of Christ's power. First of all, we see the glory of his power in the great catch of fish. The disciples, as in Luke chapter 5, here in John 21, the disciples have been out all night fishing without any success. They haven't caught anything. The Lord Jesus approaches them as the day is breaking. He commands them to cast their nets again, and there is this great Catch a fish, a miraculous manifestation of Christ's power. Secondly, we see the glory of his power in the fact that the nets do not break. And so we have this quantity of fish, too many fish for these nets to hold, to contain. But we have this going forth of the power of Christ as he preserves these nets under that tremendous load. And then we have a third manifestation of the glory of his power. That when the disciples arrive at the shore, what do they discover? There's already a charcoal fire. And there is already fish cooking on that fire. And there is already bread, this miraculous provision by the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the following. In the miraculous catch of fish, we see Christ's power to command. In a similar way, in a similar fashion, God commands the animals to enter Noah's ark. 
the locusts to devour the land of Egypt, the quail to feed the Israelites during their long wilderness sojourn, the donkey to rebuke Balaam, the fish to swallow Jonah, the ravens to provide for Elijah, a going forth of the power of God, his miraculous power to command. In the miraculous preservation of the nets, we see Christ's power to control. In the same way, God controls Aaron's staff as it turns into a snake, Gideon's fleece, as it remains dry on the dew-soaked ground, the woman's millstone as it crushes Abimelech's skull, David's stone as it springs from his sling, the soldier's arrow as it finds the opening in Ahab's armor. Tremendous manifestation of the power of God, his power to control. Thirdly, in the miraculous provision of food, we see Christ's power To create. In exactly the same way, God speaks all things into existence. We have here a wonderful confirmation of what the psalmist declares. Psalm 62, 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. The glory of Christ's power, his power to command, his power to control, and his power to create. What should be our response? Simply as follows. We should be encouraged to depend upon Christ. That is the intent of the miracles in their context. You think all the way back to Luke chapter 5, I've already made reference to it. There when the Lord Jesus performs that first miracle involving fish, there when he commands the disciples to cast their nets into the sea and they catch that quantity of fish, he actually uses it as an object lesson as he calls them to follow him, as he calls them to be his disciples. And he says to them from now on, you will be catching men. I believe the same thing is going on here in John chapter 21. This incident builds on the first. And here the disciples are reminded of their calling. Here through these tremendous miracles, and and, and namely this great catch of fish, the disciples are reminded of the fact that they have been called to follow Christ. They are reminded of the fact that they have been called to be catchers of men. And through this miracle, the Lord Jesus is now impressing upon them that by themselves, in their own strength, they cannot fulfill their calling. There is absolutely no way that in and of themselves, relying upon themselves, depending upon themselves, that they can be disciples of Christ and fulfill that call which he has placed upon them. The same holds true for us, does it not? As a matter of fact, I had two discussions this past week with two of you. I won't mention names, won't put anybody on the spot, but two discussions this past week concerning, in a roundabout way, this very issue. Because I had two individuals, separate separate circumstances, come to me and express their frustration when it comes to this very thing, casting their nets. 
when it comes to this very subject of evangelism. And these two individuals were frustrated, had gone through very trying circumstances involving family and friends as they had sought to cast their nets and, 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 and see nothing, see no results. But what a tremendous reminder we have here, do we not? What a tremendous encouragement we have to cast our nets, keep casting our nets, and once we've cast our nets, cast them again. All the while looking to the Lord Jesus, the one upon whom we are completely dependent to see any fruit. It is the Lord Jesus, friend, that must illumine the mind. You can't do it. I can't do it. It is the Lord Jesus who must soften the heart. We cannot do that. It is the Lord Jesus that must liberate the will. It is the Lord Jesus himself who brings sinners to faith and repentance. Our responsibility, our calling is to cast the net. We obey and we trust the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ himself, to bless our efforts, looking to him in complete dependence. That's the immediate context, isn't it? We can take it a bit further. Back in John chapter 15, the Lord Jesus made it very clear to disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not just evangelism. Not just when it comes to casting your nets. Brother, sister, when it comes to mortifying that sin in your life. When it comes to ministering to your brothers and sisters. When it comes to growing in knowledge and discernment. When it comes to persevering in the faith, this is an invaluable lesson that we must always keep in the forefront of our minds. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But it isn't a hopeless situation, is it? Because we look to the glory of Christ's power. And in humble dependence upon Christ, We abide in the vine. We commit ourselves to Him. And we look to Him to bless. There's a very simple way. There's a very simple means by which we can determine whether or not we really get this. You know, if I want to know this morning, you know, do do I really, do I really grasp this? Do I really understand? Do I really appreciate this fact that apart from Christ I can do nothing, that I'm completely dependent on Christ's power? There's a very obvious way in which I can examine myself. It is simply this. How much do I pray? Our prayer life reveals whether or not we get it. And I dare say, not to be, not to be harsh, but by way of challenge to you and me this morning, many of us don't get it. We don't get it. We do not get our absolute dependence upon Christ. For if we did, it would drive us to our knees daily, begging his help to be rid of that sin that has been nagging me like a pack of hounds for years. To minister and to love that brother who approaches the unlovable. To to, to minister in a way that is meaningful. to, To be able to persevere in the faith. To be able to endure under affliction. It would drive us to our knees. In each and every circumstance, if we grasp it, 
that we can try in and of our own strength. We can try time and time and time again. And it is all for naught if Christ's hand isn't in it. Oh, the glory, the glory of Christ's power should encourage me to depend upon him. The second manifestation of his glory is his grace. We see it. We catch a glimpse in verses 15 through 17, Peter's restoration. I want you to notice four things that the Lord Jesus does in these verses. First of all, the Lord Jesus reminds Peter of his nature, who, what he is by birth. How does he do that? Look at the the outset of verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Again, verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John. Verse 17, a third time, Simon, son of John. Uh, Who is Simon, son of John? It is Peter. Simon, son of John, Simon Bar-Jonah, is Peter's name by birth. The Lord Jesus had changed Simon Bar-Jonah's name to Peter. So why doesn't he refer to him as Peter? Why does he revert to Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John? He is, in a not very roundabout fashion, a very direct fashion, reminding Peter of who he is. He is reminding Peter of what he is, a mere mortal, a mere man, mere dust. He brings Peter face to face with his own nature. Secondly, notice this. He reminds Peter of his pride. How? Middle of verse 15, the question, do you love me more than these? Middle of verse 16, the question, do you love me? Middle of verse 17, the question repeated, do you love me? How does that remind Peter of his pride? Peter had declared, Matthew 26, 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He uttered those words in the audience and in the presence of the other disciples. Though they, John, James, Thomas, Matthew, the rest of them, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. And so here the Lord Jesus draws Peter's memory back to that incident. Not merely do you love me, it is this. Do you love me more than thee? That is what you had claimed, Peter. He's bringing him face to face with his arrogance, reminding him of his pride. Notice thirdly that the Lord Jesus reminds Peter of his deed. How many times does he ask the question? Three times. I dare say Peter could do the math. And when he added up to three, what was the first thing that flashed through his mind? The three denials of Christ, his deed, his actions, whereby he had denied all knowledge of Christ. The fourth thing Christ does is this. He reminds Peter of his call. Last statement in verse 15, feed my lambs. Last statement, verse 16, tend my sheep. The last statement of verse 17. Feed my sheep. What do we learn in all of this? Oh, we see something, do we not, of the glory of Christ's grace. Think of what Peter had done. 
and think of the evil of his sin, the malignity behind his sin, that he would deny all knowledge of Christ. And here we see the grace and the abounding mercy of Christ. As he, yes, as he puts his finger on the wound and he applies brutal pressure and he brings Peter back to his nature, what he is by birth, a sinner by nature, as he brings Peter face to face with his pride, and as he reminds Peter of the deed itself, it's all done in love, it's all done in mercy, it's all done with a great end in view, is it not? Peter's repentance. And once there is repentance, oh, the abundance of Christ's grace, as we have complete restoration Say, well, Peter, that's good that you love me. Well, it's time for penance, buddy. The next seven years, you're going to have to do this, that, or the next thing to prove yourself to me. Well, that's fine, Peter. You've said you're sorry, but it's from now on, our relationship is going to be marked by estrangement. Things will never be like they were before. No, as Peter confesses his sin. And as he confesses and pledges his love for Christ, there is complete restoration. And this is seen in the fact that the Lord Jesus actually commissions Peter. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Shepherd my flock. Complete restoration. Oh, I wish we would grasp this and understand this. True, complete repentance always issues forth in true, complete restoration. No estrangement. No penance. No no period of probation. The Lord Jesus restores that relationship fully, and there we see His grace. As we behold the glory of His grace, what should be our response? Well, our response should be simply this. We should be encouraged, oh, we should be encouraged to confess to Christ, shouldn't we? I should be encouraged to confess my sin to Christ. Now, that's true for the unbelievers here present with us. Uh, as you behold Christ's grace, as you see him dealing with someone like Peter, terrible sinner, You should be encouraged in heart to know that upon confession of sin, the Lord Jesus is merciful to forgive your sins. Now, people struggle with this today. They struggle with the whole issue of sin and struggle with the the whole issue of of guilt. I suppose when we stop and think about it, uh, people by and large today, they, they try to handle guilt in one of three ways. The guilt arising from their sin. Uh, Some people simply try to deny it, don't they? Uh, How do they do that? Well, if we can rid ourselves of moral absolutes, we rid ourselves of sin. Please understand, atheism is not scientific. Atheism isn't even reasonable. Uh, Scripture declares the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Atheism is a chosen philosophy. And what lies behind that philosophy is a desire to be rid of moral absolutes. Because once I am rid of moral absolutes and once I am rid of God, there is no sin. 
And therefore, I can deny my guilt. That's how some people deal with it. Other people try to suppress guilt. Try all things to to stifle it, to to keep it under, to to squash it. Uh, We see that in American society today. This is a statistic taken from about 10 years ago. I have no idea what the number is today. Over 4 million Americans, over 4 million Americans are in 12-step programs. What are they doing? They're trying to drink and drug themselves into stupefaction as a means of suppressing guilt. You've heard of Marlon Brando. I think I said his name right. You, you, you take a picture. Some of you may not, some younger ones may not know who that is. You, you look at a picture of Marlon Brando when he's a young man, good-looking, handsome man. You, you see a picture of Marlon Brando today. He weighs over 400, 400 pounds. His own words. His own words. I'm a guilty old man who's ashamed of the kind of life I've lived. There's nothing left for me except eating. And people will try all sorts of things to suppress the guilt. And it eats them alive. And even others who don't deny it, and others who don't suppress it, they will transfer their guilt. It's not my fault. My wife's fault. If only she were different, that wouldn't be a problem. It's not my fault. I'm the product of my parents' and grandparents' mistakes. It's not my fault. If my third grade teacher had shown a little more interest, I wouldn't be what I am today. It's not my fault. If the president had shown some personal interest in me, all would have been well. And on and on and on it goes, transferring guilt, so that in the end it isn't my Fault. What does Scripture declare? Jeremiah 2.22 Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Friend, if you aren't a Christian, there is only one way to deal with guilt. It is to confess it. It is to go to the one against whom you have sinned grievously, the one against whom you have sinned in ways and manners and fashions you don't even realize, the one in whose sight your entire life has been one of rebellion, and it is to confess it. All the while remembering that hymn which we sang but moments ago, Rock of Ages, that there is a Rock of Ages, There is a cross where a Savior has died for sinners. There is a fountain filled with blood where we can wash away all our guilty stains. Oh, sinner, you need to confess it. Do not let your foolishness get in the way. Do not let your pride get in the way. and Do not let your self-righteousness get in the way, but in poverty of spirit, You prostrate yourself before the Almighty. And as we sang, you declare, nothing in my hand I bring. I've got nothing. But simply to thy cross I cling. Oh, surely, surely, reasonably, as we come face to face with the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ's grace, oh, the unbeliever should confess his sin.
but it holds true for the believer as well. I hazard a guess there are one or two believers here who have sinned recently. Probably all of us have sinned since we got up this morning. Probably all of us already sinned even since the time we started worshiping here together this morning. But what a great truth as we look to Peter, a backslidden Christian, and someone who had sinned grievously, what a great what a great truth, what a great encouragement to confess our sin yet again to Christ. When I know the objection, I've heard it before and I've uttered it before from the lips of, I've heard it from the lips of many believers. Well, but if you knew my sin and if you knew what I had done, and the fact that it's something I've done before, I just don't see how I can keep coming back to Christ and asking forgiveness, the shame. And the inconsistency, how is it possible? How is it possible that I could have done that and done it repeatedly and call myself a Christian? Friend, believer, you need to understand something. And excuse the analogy, but I think it will be helpful. There is a striking difference between a sheep and a pig. Did you know that? Not just in terms of what they look like, but in terms of what they do. When a sheep falls in the mud, what does it want? What's its reaction? Oh, it wants to get out of there. It is unnatural. Its first reaction, its knee-jerk reaction is to get out of the mud. When a pig falls in the mud, actually check that, a pig doesn't fall in the mud. It willingly jumps in the mud. And when it does, it wallows in the mud. Why? Because it is? Friend, the very fact that you're guilt-ridden, the very fact that you're face-to-face with your shame, the very fact that, that such, a, such a question would even enter your mind, how could I do that and bear the name of Christ, speaks of what? That you are a sheep in the mud. Pick yourself up. Get out of the mud. Confess your sin to Christ. Oh, the glory of Christ's grace. It's wonderful. Yes, it's painful. Oh, it must have been excruciatingly painful for Peter to be reminded, Peter, here's what you are by birth. Simon, son of John. Sinful, sinful through and through. That's what you are. Thanks, Lord. Peter, here's what you've done. Do you remember the deed? Denied me time and time again. Peter, your pride that you stood in front of these men and said, though they all fall away and run away, I will never leave you. Oh, the pain as he brings him face to face with his, with his sin. And yet the Lord Jesus doesn't leave it hanging over Peter's head, does he? As Peter claims his love for Christ, this, this repentance that issues forth from his heart. We see complete restoration. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, tend my flock. Peter, watch over my lambs. Again, friend, where there is complete confession, there is most certainly complete restoration. Now, the third manifestation of Christ's glory, it is his knowledge. Look with me at verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And immediately the Lord Jesus gives a manifestation of his knowledge, doesn't he? He gives us a little sampling of his omniscience. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It speaks of imprisonment and his eventual martyrdom. John hints at it at verse 19. He adds the comment, This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so here we have Christ's omniscience. His omniscience linked with his sovereignty. You cannot divorce the two. Christ knows all things because he is sovereign over all things. Christ is sovereign over all things. Therefore, he knows all things. He has numbered Peter's days. He has numbered Peter's ministry. And here he reveals how Peter, not just in his ministry, in his life, but in his very death, will glorify God. And he follows it up with this great commandment. Here's what you're to do, therefore, Peter. Follow me. Trust in me. Oh, Peter. Verse 20. What does he do? He turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, evidently, following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will, notice the link between knowledge and sovereignty. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter, here's what you're to do. The last statement there in verse 22. You follow me. Two great obstacles I submit to you when it comes to following Christ. The first is the fear of what that might mean. The fear of suffering. And here the Lord Jesus, he, he lays it on the line. He tells Peter, yes, you are going to suffer. When you get old, you're going to be led where you do not want to go. Ultimately, you are going to die for, for me. But even in that death, you will glorify my Father. And so in sovereignty, that is in the glory of Christ's knowledge, we have all that we need to get over this great fear when it comes to suffering, knowing that all things ultimately rest in His hand. The second great obstacle to, to, to following after Christ is what? Far too often we're like Peter and we spend far too much time doing what? Looking at others. Worrying about others. Ultimately, it's a question of pride, isn't it? Okay, Lord, that's what you have in store for me. I'm going to glorify God in death. What, what about this man? What's Christ's response? It's none of your business. You follow me, oh believer, when we come face to face, when we have it right before us, the glory of Christ's knowledge, or if you like, you can write in there, the glory of Christ's sovereignty. What should be our response? Oh, we should be encouraged to follow after Christ. William Borden, I may have shared this with you before. I start to forget what illustrations I've used and I haven't used, but you'll excuse me if I've used it before. William Borden lived in the 1800s, born into a wealthy, prestigious, privileged family, graduate of Yale, the world at his fingertips. The Lord called him to be a missionary to China. He obeyed. His family 
wanted nothing to do with him, disinherited him. His friends called him literally a fool. William Borden never made it to China. He contracted a disease along the way and died. But as he lay dying on his deathbed, he penned the following. Listen to this. No reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. Why? Because he was following Christ. And he rested in the knowledge of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, and his only will, his only impulse, we might say, was to know the will of his Savior and do it. James Montgomery Boyce on this theme writes the following. I encourage you to give it dutiful attention. There is a defect, even a fatal defect, in the life of the Church of Christ in the 20th century. A lack of true discipleship. For the genuine Christian, discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity that is supposed to be done in his name, there is actually very little following of Christ. And that means that in some circles at least, there is very little genuine Christianity. So let me ask you. Three questions. You can probably guess what they are. Do you see the glory of Christ's power? If so, do you depend on him? Second question. Do you see the glory of Christ's grace? If so, do you confess to him? The third question. Do you see the glory of Christ's knowledge, his sovereignty? If so, do you follow After him, our great God, enthroned in majesty above, invisible, immortal, God only wise, we do prostrate ourselves before you and ask your blessing upon your word as it has gone forth this morning. Our prayer is simple, that you might open our eyes to see Jesus, that you may open our hearts to receive Jesus in ever greater portion. We do pray that you would fill us with Christ, that he might be formed in us, and that he might have the glory in our lives. Our Father, you know the need of each one here this day. As mentioned earlier, you know those who are disturbed. And so we do pray that your word might come with comfort, soothing the soul, healing the wounds. And you too, Father, you alone know those who are far too comfortable. And we ask that your word might come as a sword and pierce into the very inner hearts and regions and recesses of the soul, showing them their need of Christ and of their need of repentance. We ask it. In that name which is alone worthy, that name which is above all names, the name of Christ. Amen.